Welcome to Art in the Open. I'm Shelley Miller, a Montreal-based artist, working in the fields of both permanent public art as well as ephemeral street art. In this podcast, I'll chat with creatives and professionals who work in and around the industries of art and public spaces. Catherine Harvey is known for her layered, luminescent style of painting. Her website describes her work as both representational abstractions and abstract representations. Her paintings often exude a powerful sense of energy and motion and read as blurred camera stills that have recorded an intangible moment of in-betweenness, where what is felt and seen are simultaneously present. She joins me today via Zoom from her studio in Toronto. I hope you'll enjoy our conversation as we discuss her process, how she transitioned into doing public art, and all that she's learned along the way. So, yes, it's been a long, long time since we've seen each other. We have been in touch talking about public art and swapping swapping stories and tips, but it's been a long time since 2003 when we met at the BAM Centre for a residency. That's right. Big Rock Candy Mountain. That was a lot of fun. That was a great time. Yeah, such a great group of people. Yes, yes. And at that time, you were doing paintings, I believe, of candy window displays. Is that correct? That's right. I um, loved the candy store in Banff, of course. It's famous, that store with all the uh, sugar shapes of deer and reindeers and carts and animals. And I photographed all those and then I made a bunch of paintings of that window. Right. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I met you thinking of you as a painter, as you are. But over the years, I've seen your practice really grow and expand into so many different mediums. Um, I still think of you as a painter, but I'm curious, do you think of yourself still as a painter? Or would you describe yourself more as a multi multimedia artist? Uh, I'd say I'm a painter. Yeah. At the very root of it. But I certainly have worked in a variety of mediums. So it's and I fun. It's really fun to switch between the mediums. And that is my shtick really is to paint a series of work and then maybe decide to build the thing that I'm painting Mm -hmm. and then make paintings of the thing I built and then build it again or a different version and then paint it again so that the installations inform the paintings and vice versa. Right. So I started out painting ships in water. And uh, I love that tie-in to your work with your, a lot of your imagery, some of your mosaics um, made out of sugar are of the schooners Mm. bringing the sugar over to North America and all your comments on the inequity of the slave labor involved in doing that. Mm. I was painting ships and um that was based on doing my master's at university of victoria and being on the coast Mm -hmm. and then uh, when i came back to toronto i was looking for ships in the storefront windows and photographed those and did some paintings some were fantastical where the boats were kind of sailing off in into the storefronts in a fictional way. And then I decided, well, why don't I make my own storefront window display? <laughs> and so I did at Stride Gallery. That was my first one in Calgary in 2001. 
I had a series of paintings of storefronts in the gallery, but I also created a storefront display for the window. And some people thought it was a store and would come in and ask if they could buy something in the window, <laughs> which of course wasn't for sale. <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. And I went around to thrift stores because I didn't have a lot of money to make the display with. So I went to thrift stores and used some recycled objects and filled the window. And then after that, I documented the window. And when I went home, I created more paintings based off the photographs of that window. Mm. I really like that reciprocal relationship that you described and the back and forth yes. that goes on. Yeah, it started early um, and then just has continued. One thing bounces off the next and I go back and forth between the mediums. So back in, in Toronto, I did a project at Solo Exhibition, which is, was run by Barr Gilmore. And he had a storefront window beside Dufflet Bakery, a tall, narrow window. And I asked him if I could do a project there. So I filled the, I made six shelves and filled them with objects of different colors. So it looked like layers of the ocean. So it went from black to dark green to lighter green and transparent at the top. So it was levels of water, but it was all objects placed in there. And so I did that installation. Then I photographed the installation and then I created a canvas, the, the shape of that window. So it's tall and narrow. Um, and I, it was an oil painting of the window, which I placed back into the window mm. uh, some months later. I'm glad you described all that. And it makes so much sense because your paintings are very luminescent and there's such a luminosity in them and in your treatment and the layering. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that back and forth relationship. And it's also interesting because I wanted to ask you a bit about how you kind of perceive and go back and forth between your studio practice and your public art practice. Because, you know, for some artists, there's a bit more distinction. For some, it's one and the same. And so I, and I was curious if you differentiate between them or uh, if it kind of just falls under the same type of uh, process for you. Yeah, I don't really see them as being distinct entities. I really concentrate on the flow, as you say, back and forth between the public art and the painting practice and how they inform each other. I make maquettes or sketches of the public art, and those are paintings in themselves, often multi-layered studies on this transparent Duralar film that I paint on, which you can then layer up on top of each other to get that effect. And then uh, that relates exactly really to my painting practice where I'm creating layers on a single surface and using um, often using acrylic gel medium to separate the layers and build up a thick surface where you can see through to the layers beneath. So they really um, they don't feel distinct at all. I like how they bounce back and forth. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that now that some of your works are fabricated in glass and painting yeah. on glass, that, that that just seems like such a natural progression for you to now be actually working with layers of luminosity in, in layers of glass. 
Yes, that's really been my dream project. It's been a long time in production. I started on it six years ago for Great Gulf. Um, it's going to be launched finally this spring at a Toronto festival. I hope we're just about to announce that very shortly. But my idea was to create a light box and have uh, three layers of glass arranged in depth in the window, four inches apart, and then backlit with LED pa uh, panels that light it up. And uh, then work with the layering of the painting on the different levels of glass. So the there it's a graphic kind of design with lines. And as you walk by, the lines appear to move because of the depth mm -hmm. of these layers. And then when you walk by, it seems to, appears to be in motion. So that was a ton of fun and really hard work to realize that vision with the developer and create this light box. And then I had this fabulous experience with Meyer of Munich, which is a famous glass and mosaic studio in Munich, Germany. And they are incredible artisans. Yes. Yeah. And they really helped realize my dream and did it beautifully. I did a beautiful job. So I gave them designs in Photoshop. It was a long process. And then they actually did the painting onto the glass because their artisans really know how that ceramic paint reacts onto the glass. And then it's the glass is fired in a kiln, a, a, a kiln on a table. So it's flat and the colors, the ceramic colors fuse to the glass and become permanent like a any ceramic glaze. So uh, the colors are permanently fused like stained glass, but the it's called hand-painted float glass because you don't, unlike stained glass, you don't have to contain the colors in lead outlines. You can paint free form onto the glass. Right. How has that experience been for you working with fabricators? You've had works made in glass, as you've described, as well as mosaic. How is that process for you, you know, where you're working with a whole team of artisans and maybe sometimes in a material that you have never worked before, you know, for the first times that you worked in those mediums? What has that been like to, you know, to kind of have other people help create your vision? Well, it's actually been fantastic. Uh, I've had great experiences. I really can't complain um, at all. Uh, you've worked with Mosaica in Montreal as well. Yes. And you know how fantastic that Mosaic studio is. So working with uh, Saskia Seabrand, I explained my vision to her. We worked on the imagery together. I had my design in Photoshop, but she helped tweak it to make it make sense for her studio and the, how the artisans would be creating the mosaics. And then I gave her kind of a list of my vision of how I wanted the thing to be playful and free form and contain photorealism as well as abstraction in one mosaic and get a sense of motion in mosaic, which is difficult to do and not really a standard thing you would portray in mosaics, which are kind of a static 
medium, but I wanted them to feel like they were in motion. And also my image, my design was a double exposure. So I wanted them to have that feel of double exposure as well in the mosaic, which isn't usually a thing you would do in mosaics as well. You would have kind of like a, a very flat image that you'd be portraying. So I gave them, I threw all these challenges at them and they just ran with it. Their artisans were fantastic and Really, the results were just stunning. I just love what they did. So, um, and again, with the Meyer of Munich, their artisans are so professional. I mean, I did go to Munich twice and I spent a week there working on my designs and learning how to do the ceramic painting onto the glass and firing the samples so that I could see how the medium did work and how what I could do with the colors. Um, but their artisans really, well, they're just working nonstop on all kinds of different projects. So they can switch gears and work with different styles of artists and realize their visions as well. And I would say that was a fabulous experience as well. I've also worked with some great um, digital printers, uh, fabricators who print onto glass. Uh, Pulp Studio in California. I've done a couple projects with them now. The latest one was the glass windows at Chester Subway Station. And um, I worked very closely with Pulp Studio on finalizing that image blowing it up, which was really difficult to enlarge it properly. They had to drum scan the image and then to get the color really vibrant, how I wanted it. And they did a fantastic job. There are lots of tests, test glass panels that went back and forth. You know, it's not an easy thing. It takes a long time, right? Right. It takes some time and patience. And Sohil Mosin in Toronto, who I've worked with on digital prints in light boxes as well. And they produce gorgeous images, very, very professional. And they we've come up with a light box design together for a corporate setting. And we've we're on our second series of these light boxes. So we've perfected this technique and the digital printing is really beautiful, top quality. That's great. I'm so happy to hear that you've had such amazing experiences with so many different kinds of fabricators. I, I agree that it's such an invaluable relationship between artist and fabricator and finding the right fabricator for you and that you really feel like they can bring your vision to life is is essential, you know, right? Well, I've been lucky and these fabricators get very busy and yes. they're in high demand and working on all kinds of projects. So you've got to get in the queue and hope that you can stay in the queue and fit in around, you know, a myriad of other projects. So you kind of have to be patient and just wait until you can work with these top quality fabricators. Yes, for sure. Tell me a little bit how you got into doing permanent public art. What were, what were some of the first projects that you did? Well, I started with temporary installations, like I mentioned, and storefront window displays and um, artist-run installations in factory settings. 
I did a, was in a festival weekend festival called making room in Toronto, which was a, a floor of a abandoned factory uh, where we set up for one weekend. Um, I've done, done work at uh, Nuit Blanche temporary um, installations. So I did, I've done decades of temporary installations and then uh, some of them finally led me to more notoriety. And I was contacted by public art management, Karen Mills, to be shortlisted for a project at Concord 8X City Place in Toronto, where they had an architectural frame for a window three stories tall. And they wanted an artist to design an image and fill that window. And luckily, they picked me out of a five shortlisted artists. And that was a fantastic project. Also, because an art consultant, a really great one, Karen and Ben Mills were involved through the entire process with the fabrication and the budget and um, helped me realize that. So that was my first large scale public art project, which kind of flowed out of all the temporary works that I had done. I did five different temporary projects for Brookfield properties um, in Toronto, and then one in New York City at the World Financial Center in the Winter Gardens. And then we transported that piece to Los Angeles, to the Bank of America, where I transformed it again into a waterfall for the lobby. And these shows would be up for a month or two, or sometimes only a week. And they were a lot of fun as well, because Brookfield really had a vision for realizing these projects and had a have a budget for this kind of work, which um, works for them as well, because they're teaching their tenants about recycling plastic. These my projects were all made out of recycled plastic. Right. Detritus yeah. The, from the, the yeah. hanging waterfall and the, and the chandeliers. Yeah. So um, Brookfield Properties was fantastic to work with. And I guess the one project kept building onto the next and the next as they grew in size. And I would keep the materials from one and use it for the next one. And then luckily I was asked to be involved with the Concord 8X project. So it sounds like you've worked a fair bit with uh, private corporations as well as programs like the Percent for Art. Is that correct? Uh, yes. Yes. So then the TTC, the mosaics I created for Chester Subway Station, which were fabricated by Mosaica of Montreal, that was a juried process, a formal juried process where artists applied and then were shortlisted and had to come up with a project idea and present it to a jury and win, you know, win the award of the contract. So that was um, a formal process, but the TTC has a mandate to have art created under a 1% uh, program where when they renovate a subway station and put in elevators, 
um, for to make the uh, station accessible for wheelchairs, mm-hmm. elevators, and a second exit so that it's the station is safer. There's two exits. Then one percent of that construction budget goes towards artwork at the station, and they're still continuing that program today. So that was how my artwork could be realized was a budget based on that. So I had $200,000 to create mosaics and a window piece. Right. Yeah. They're doing a lot of that in Montreal as well, renovating a lot of the, uh, the metro stations. And I actually have a project, uh, to be done in the next few months, uh, at the station Angrignon. In Great. Yeah, it's been a long time coming because of COVID. There's been some delays, but it'll oh, be yeah. done Lots in the next few months. Lots of COVID delays, um, two-year delays. Uh, I mm-hmm. finished the mosaics a year and a half ago for Chester Subway, and we still haven't had a launch. Right, yeah. And the Great Gulf piece. So the Great Gulf piece was a bit different. They... Um, we're building two 45-story condo towers, which it was a huge project right in downtown Toronto at Richmond and Victoria Street. And they made a deal with the city where all the local developers do contribute 1% or I don't know exactly to um, public art or community based projects so it doesn't have to necessarily be art Um, a lot of the developers downtown gave percentages of their budget to the city and that's money's being used to build the north market of st lawrence market so sometimes it's used towards a community center building or another community project like uh, the the very important uh farmer's market. Right. Oh, I didn't know that. That's an interesting way to also right. utilize so, those yeah. funds. Right. So there's other ways or a park park building or all kinds of different things. But then as well, Great Gulf agreed with the city to create actually called private art features because they didn't have they didn't do a jury or um art consultant process. They emailed me one day and said, do you want to work with us? (laughs) So that was a sweet deal to get that kind of an email in my (laughs) inbox. Definitely. Yeah. That's the email Um, that we all want to get in our inbox. (laughs) That's right. Six years ago. (laughs) Uh, So it's been a long process because part of that was waiting for the condos to be built before the art piece could go in. So there's different ways of um, approaching these projects and different ways they come into being. For sure. And, you know, I think that somebody from the outside might hear, oh, she just got this email, like how lucky. But, you know, you and I know that there's no such thing as luck and you have worked hard tirelessly for years. And that email was the result of relationship building and having an amazing, strong portfolio and not luck. It's from your hard work that well, people exactly. know about you and now they're reaching out. So that's great. De- decades of decades of hard work and not a lot of pay. I must <laughs> say we're not in it for the money, right? Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> we're in it for the fun. 
Yeah, and definitely that client came to me because they saw my work at Nicolas Metivier Gallery and they'd met me and they'd seen the Gardner Streams piece for Concord 8X. So one thing builds on another and you do, do build relationships through the community and at gallery shows and yeah, it's a long haul. And a reputation. Sure. And I'm sure that people have seen that you can successfully deliver projects, you know, well and on budget. So those, right. all of those things are important and valuable. Right. You do get uh, some gigs because people know you can make stuff and deliver it and do the paperwork and answer the emails and be organized at an admin level, which I had to learn doing all of those large temporary chandeliers and waterfalls, which are massive. And you had to, I had to organize five or six laborers to work for me to build these projects. And so I managing money and people and you had to, you have to be organized. For sure. And I should say not to uh, diminish the fact that you also produce just amazingly beautiful visual works as well. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thanks. <laughs> but it's, it's a whole package, right? And, you know, I think people can obviously see that you deliver on many levels. Thank you. I like to think that I do. I do. I do. It takes a long time, but I just keep plugging away. As you know, you just keep plugging away. Yeah, absolutely. And be consistent with your work over decades and then it becomes apparent to people. Yeah. So we've, you know, chatted a little bit in emails about budgets and budget management. I'd love to know more about what some of the lessons are you've learned some of the hard lessons maybe and advice and things that you do now that maybe you didn't know or wouldn't have done when you started? So I did hear some stories from other artists working in the public art sector. And Michael Lexier was very generous with his time and his advice and gave me some good advice, which was spread out the contract payments so you get paid at each juncture of the project as you deliver a certain segment of the design and you know try not to lose your shirt by doing all this work and then you get paid you know two years later or whatever it doesn't have to be that dramatic but he was a big help with some general advice like that and James Leahy also helped me out with a contract advice for public art to work with a developer. And so art consultants also are a vital piece of the puzzle and they can help you figure out how to budget. But basically, as I've told you, put a big cushion in your budget for the unforeseeable, have a large contingency for that two-year COVID gap or, you know, who could foresee or materials going skyrocketing in price. Yeah, Um, absolutely. Think of um, a budget that might be five years out. So when your fabricator quotes, ask them to 
build into the budget, you know, what is this going to cost in five years? Right. So, so many things that we can't control. And I think the last two years have really told everybody how much we all have to pad in things in our daily oh. budgets for work and personal as well. I mean, for yeah, I, I totally understand this project I'm doing. Steel prices have gone up oh, exponentially. Steel, oh, my goodness. Are you working with steel? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No. Oh no. Luckily it's it's not a huge project, so you know, proportionally it's not a huge part of the budget, but it's still a chunk that I, I wasn't expecting. So for also, you I would, I would say what I learned also is that um I in the future would build in um a fee at the end because there's so much to do at the end of the project as it's finishing up and getting ready for the public. Maybe there's some lighting mm -hmm. um, cues that you need to tweak or um, you've got to clean the glass because it got dirty during the construction project or you're consulting about the opening launch or dealing with all a myriad of um, concerns. So and you've been paid for the design of the piece maybe three years previously, but you're, and so you've been paid technically for your design, but you're still managing the project three years right. down the road. So build in a fee for that at the end, for all the management you're doing with the yeah. client at the end, especially if the client employees change or if you don't have an art consultant involved perhaps like i had no art consultant with great cons great golf so uh, i had to do a lot of the art consultancy myself <laughs> but i was paid for the design many years ago right i think as artists we've become so accustomed to wearing so many hats that we forget to pay ourselves for all those different roles, right? And yes. I've started now in budgets to break it down so that, you know, for example, if I'm busy on other projects and I then need to hire an assistant or right. a manager or an administrator, that I have right. funds to pay them. And if I'm doing that work, well, then I'll get paid for that because as you say, your artist fees really should really just be for your, your creative vision and your design, not for all the other tasks that you do. Oh yeah. No, there's a ton of admin, mm -hmm. but just think of all the hats we have to wear, uh, wear and we've been wearing from the beginning, you know, you need not just to have creative ideas, but you have to be a carpenter to build your painting panels. You've got to admin, manage all the, mountains of emails you get, uh, budgeting, shipping, like crating, uh, paperwork for that. If you're shipping overseas, uh, all the regulations, um, it's, it goes on and on. There's so many hats yeah. that we wear. For your projects that are done outside of the country, do you work with a broker or somebody to help negotiate all of those customs issues? Uh, I've had various uh, shipping <laughs> concerns because I have a gallerist in Hamburg and there's been different uh, things that we've done, but the gallery has a really good shipper and we just 
use them now and they seem to handle all of it. But also I've worked with uh, museum pros in Toronto on a variety of projects and they are fantastic and they do a lot of work for me and with me, including framing of artworks. They installed the glass uh, pieces at, for Great Golf at uh, 25 Richmond Street East. And that was a huge project they were involved in for months, uh, figuring out how to install those pieces and basically reinventing the wheel, making a framing system, designing that framing system, sourcing out the LED panels. Uh, it goes on and on. And they do international shipping as well. Okay. Well, just to go back uh, a little bit with what we were saying earlier about the budget, you mentioned having a, a healthy contingency. Do you have a percentage? Like when you look at a budget from the very beginning, do you slice off set percentages as your fee, as your contingency? I'm not an expert, but I would say I think it's industry standard is like 10 to 15 percent contingency some but developers have way more experience with that on these huge multi-million dollar projects and their contingents well they're very good at what they do so and they've done it many times before the same project many times so their contingency might be less than mine would be whereas i would have a lot more unknowns in this creative process. So I would tend to maybe build in, yeah, 15% would be great Mm -hmm. if you can, because invariably you use it up. I mean, I, I, as I say, I get a design fee, but I, I never get rich off any of these projects. I, right. Yeah never have a contingency left over, I end up using it for something or finding something I can use it for to enhance the project. Right. Because that's, I mean, ultimately, I feel like we just want to create the best art that we can, right? So that when it's up in the world, we're super proud of it. Right. So that could be lighting or follow-up maintenance uh, for the project down the road or you know, making the maintenance manual, which can be a huge job. For sure. Um, Yeah. Something else that I wanted to ask you about, um, I believe you've been a part of a mentorship program with Public Art. Right. Where you were the mentor. Right. So I've done two projects. One was with the Varley Gallery, where I was a mentor and we found five artists who wanted to do a mural project in Markham for a train underpass. So I helped them realize that vision. And it was kind of like an informal course for them to learn how to make, to take their um, easel size paintings and realize a large scale mural and also in a collaborative setting. So I facilitated that process it was really fun and we created a beautiful, they created a beautiful thing in Markham. And then for Region of Waterloo, a public art project for the LRT system a few years ago, I suggested to them that I mentor an Indigenous artist 
And that was because the region in their call out for submissions wanted indigenous artists to apply, but none of them did Mm. because perhaps they didn't have the resources to figure out how to put a proposal together. I don't know. There could be a myriad of reasons. So I asked the region if I could mentor an indigenous artist for this project. So you made the suggestion to do that. I made the suggestion and this was say eight years ago. And it was a, a bit before the current atmosphere where there is a lot more mentoring happening and more opportunities for Indigenous artists. So I took it upon myself to go out into the community and look at art and approach Indigenous artists and try and find someone to work with. And then I helped. So I found Lindsay Lickers, who's a uh, um, Anishinaabe Haudenosaunee artist. Sorry, my pronunciation is terrible. From the region here to apply. And I helped her with her submission um, to come up with the design. And I did a lot of the background admission, um, submission admin and the Photoshop of a myriad of things and um, helped with the presentation we were going to make. And then we were awarded the contract Mm -hmm. and then we created the project together, but I really had no back. Like the region was happy to have this project but they didn't also have any resources at hand to help with this process of me trying to communicate with a woman from a very different culture than mine and try to make this project work and communicate well. And um, it was uh, difficult because uh, we communicate in different ways and we realize the project, it's up, it's beautiful. But I wish at that time that there was a more formal mentoring process in place. And I wish some elders of her choosing had been involved to help us through the final stages where I could communicate to the elders. And so could she and we could work out some of the design issues or whatever issues we had around realizing the final product. So I think now I've, I saw a project last year, a call out for a project in Toronto, the George street revitalization Mm -hmm. project where did, did you apply to that one? I I did me and um, a couple of landscape architects sometimes uh-huh. do team proposals and so oh did you get shortlisted we were not shortlisted but oh. i was nodding because i i'm familiar with the call out for that project yeah but the call out looked great because they actually were taking this more into consideration and and other public art projects have had call outs where there's a mentorship program built in at the beginning mm-hmm. like the artist knows at the beginning there's going to be Ten to fifteen thousand dollars built into the budget to pay for this artist to work with the main public artist, so that they're getting paid and 
it's a it's a formal mentoring project. And I hope that if you're working with an indigenous artist, that some elders or other consultants could be involved in the process from the very beginning. It would make it much easier. Yeah, I remember seeing that aspect of the mentorship program with the George Street and thinking, you know, every, when I see those, I think it's such a great idea. And I'm always a bit surprised that I don't see more of those programs. They still feel like there's not enough of them. And so I was curious about the one you worked on because I had assumed that it was more of a formal program. But it's really interesting that you just took that on yourself. I took it on myself um, because at the time, awareness was starting in this area and Gord Downey was um, putting out his secret project and working to support Indigenous artists who had suffered, uh, Indigenous people who had suffered during the residential school system, tragedies. And he was an inspiration for me, Mm. certainly. So the atmosphere was starting at that time, but nothing had really started to be formalized in that regard. And so I kind of invented this process myself and it wasn't perfect. Yeah. Well, it's like the old adage, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. Right. Right. And makes it hard because um, it doesn't always work. You can get criticized for not communicating well and um, you just keep going because the communication is really key in these mentorship programs. And well, just think of how difficult it is during COVID. We're all trying to communicate through Zoom. We can't meet in public and really hash out ideas and problems. We're all in our little bubbles. It's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, it's even more difficult now, as you say, to have these kinds of real connections that need to need to take place face to face. Right. Right. Think of me trying to mentor five artists on a mural project remotely through Zoom. I mean, it just would like we're it would not have worked. We had to be in a studio together with materials and making stuff and talking in a room together. (laughs) Ideally, yes. Ideally, yeah. Hopefully, this COVID pandemic is lessening so we can meet more in person. Yes, definitely. Um, tell me a little bit more about what's coming up. I think you've got some uh, exciting new projects in the works. Well, I've always got a bunch of things on the go, you know me. <laughs> yes, so, indeed. Um, Always working on paintings in the studio. I have a new series of paintings based on architectural ceilings. So uh, this uh, painting of Alan Garden's greenhouse called Palm House that I'm working on, as well as uh, some ceilings of theaters and uh, churches and thinking about how these man-made ceilings are describing another world and the otherworldly 
the divine, the magical, the heavens, whatever you want to call it. So it's a different kind of landscape painting, but I'm paint, I'm doing paintings of architectural ceilings. And then who knows, wouldn't that be great if it led to a public art <laughs> project where I yeah. created a ceiling? <laughs> that would be fun. So I'm working on paintings and um, because we've all been cut off during uh, COVID, I've been exploring social media and that whole crazy world, which is so surreal and bizarre and based on algorithms and ratings. And how does my work fit in in that landscape, which seems to be important? So people say, well, you've got to be on Instagrams. I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> I guess so. So I bought a little video camera and I'm trying to learn videography and how does my, how do I relate to the public, what I'm doing? So the public's been quite interested in seeing into my studio and watching my process as I create a painting and during using time-lapse photography or just stages of painting and trying to show my workshop and my materials. So I'm trying to learn how to portray myself online, I guess you would say, um, in a reasonable manner that, because I'm not mainstream culture where we are a kind of subculture, but how do you fit that in to the mainstream platform, which is Instagram. Like, how do you negotiate that? How do you navigate that? It's so bizarre. It's been crazy, really. And then as well, doing uh, material projects, like I'm working on another light box piece, which are digital prints of my paintings for a corporate setting in Toronto. And then I have a longer range project I've been working on for two years and I'm still not there yet, but it's going to be a temporary outdoor piece, which is basically performative. And I do have an Ontario Arts Council grant for it, but I'm working on the venue and uh, budget problems, trying to get more money. <laughs> and um, that's upcoming. I can't say too much more about it, but... Um, I'm taking some courses to learn new skills relating to it. So um, I'll give you a hint, although it's not exactly what I'm doing, but I did just complete my fireworks display assistant certificate. Well, <laughs> Catherine, I know that because I follow you on Instagram. Well, there you go. <laughs> And uh, I mean, all of that stuff sounds so fantastic. I can't wait to see. But I think what you're doing on Instagram is working because I, I've actually found myself really fascinated by some of the, the posts you've done showing your research uh, and you know your process videos. It, I, I'm interested and I know what oh, you mean right. that sometimes you're like, who am I making this for? But it's for people like me, you know, other art nerds that just like to see what other artists are working on. Well, you could easily, I don't know if you have, but you could post how you're making your 
sugar tiles. Like I'd love to see you actually making those. Cause I looked online with your photos of how you make those. And I love how they deteriorate all those photos of them deteriorating. They're so gorgeous. I just, mm, yummy. So, um, uh, my, I have a young woman helping me. She's 30 years old. She understands this world better than me and she's in marketing and she's advising me that it's all about posting reels, posting videos. So I'm trying to learn videographer via videography and making short reels about how I make the work. And um, it's, I've made a lot of bad films. <laughs> <laughs> And of uh, trying to show how my puppy relates to my art practice because he's lying around. He's not here right now because he's too loud, but how he relates to my work. He's my muse. He's part of your process. He's part of my process. He gets me outside walking around to clear my head. Mm. He lies on his bed over there sleeping while I'm making my work. There's so many ways. So I'm thinking about that. Um, as part of my process and how to communicate that, like how, how does your domestic life um, influence your art practice? I don't have young kids. I think you have a son. So I'm sure he's related an integral part of your art practice. So talking about things like that, which people are interested in kind of demystifying artists mm -hmm. and showing how their domestic life crosses over into their studio practice. Like they're making their work in the kitchen while they're making dinner and they're making sugar tiles. I don't know how you do it. Yeah. Sure you no, it's, it's true. No, it's, it's, <laughs> it's true that often the best thing to show is just snippets of our authentic self. Right. Right. And so what is my authentic self. What is it at the root of it? Um, I'm delving into that. You know, mm. why do I make art? How, do, how does it thrill me? Uh, why am I so committed to training this puppy to be part of my life, but he's also part of my studio life. And why is that? How, like diving deep into why we have dogs, which goes back to the hunter gatherer days, you know, and, um, my stepchildren are grown up, so they're not so much my influence, but maybe I should explore that too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. So, um, and then, so I'm working on all that and, um, I did do some video projects portraying my public art project. So I worked with Inkblot Media, uh, Sarah Keenly side, who's in Montreal at the moment, but about to move to Europe. And she uh, documented and edited uh, short films about the Chesto mosaics, and then a longer one for Great Golf for the glass pieces. And she did a fantastic job. And we're just about to launch that video. But that was a lot of work, like overseeing the videography and interpretation and editing of how that piece and the process of making that piece 
would come together in a six minute video. So there's that. And then I'm uh, working towards a show in Germany, hopefully in a year or two with uh, my gallerist in Hamburg. Fantastic. You've, you've inspired me. I'm, I'm going to make some reels of my Angry Yellow project and start posting them. It's, I don't know why I'm not doing that. <laughs> Great. Well, you know, appar- apparently you only need 15 seconds. Oh, yeah. Um, it's so it little to just much. make a, make a um, sound bite. But even I've been looking at uh, other sites that are, okay, well, what is cool? What is uncool? Am I cool? <laughs> Am I uncool? I don't know. <laughs> but apparently, what I've seen is you really only need three second bites, a three second view of something, and then three seconds of something else and three seconds as you're working and you kind of, you have to learn video editing too, but that's difficult, but, and you just kind of put these little snippets together and it shows uh, your process as you're making the work. It doesn't have to be time-lapse, which I find time-lapse pretty annoying because mm. um, I don't want to yeah. be watched the whole time I'm working because I'm, I'm hearing the camera clicking in the background or I, I don't, I don't want to knock it over because it's right behind me. So I find that pretty annoying. I'll do a little bit here and there, but you just need three second um, snippets of your work. And uh, you, I love your vision, the visuals on your website of you mixing the, well, there's a video on your site of you mixing the sugar and making the tiles and, this is what people love to see. Yeah, it's a very photogenic process. Yeah, and then the decay, like that would be, well, not necessarily time-lapse because then you'd be having a camera there for seven weeks, which is really annoying. Yeah, but, I do photo um, photo lapse, basically. GIF animations. Yeah, and I love how they decay. They're just beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. As you say, just to demystify the process for others can be fun. Right. And just, I love the idea of temporary art, public artworks, which are there and then gone again. I think you were talking about that with your first uh, guest, Peter Gibson, is mm-hmm. it? Yes. Where he yeah. paints on the road, uh, these gorgeous, gorgeous paintings on the road, which of course decay and fade as people walk and drive over them. Um that watching that process. So the creative process is making the piece it's and the finished project, the finished product, but then like a Buddhist sand mandala, you sweep it up into a jar and you throw it in the water. Like it's here and then it's gone. And the art is the process of creating it. Yes. Well, it probably goes without saying that I am okay with the idea of impermanence in my work. And it's a beautiful idea. Yeah. Thank you so much for being so open and generous with your, your process and your experience. It's been really, uh, really insightful and interesting for me to hear more about how you've navigated the world of public art and how you entered it. And um, yeah, I'm so excited to see what's coming next from you. Well, thanks, Shelley, and thanks for giving me this opportunity to kind of think about what I'm doing and how to communicate that to you, which is 
part of it and try to think about what difficulties I have had recently and how I've so I've learned through talking with you and it's an ongoing dialogue, right? To where artists share ideas and I'm sure we'll be back in touch about our next projects. Yes, definitely. And hopefully we can do this in person someday soon. Yeah, that would be great. Okay, Catherine, thank you so much again for your time and uh, we'll be in touch. Take care. Thanks, Shelley. Bye for now. For further information about today's guest and to learn more about the podcast, follow the Art in the Open link at ShellyMillerStudio.com. And don't forget to keep exploring Art in the Open.